Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. <coughs> In the year 79 AD, the Roman Empire got to know the wrath of the gods and the Pompeii was erased from existence. My guest today is here to talk about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which led to the destruction of Pompeii. Thank you, thank you for coming, Taylor Layton. And I always ask my guest, what, what, well, how do you get interested in Pompeii and the eruption of Pompeii? For me, sorry, Mount Vesuvius, not Pompeii. For me, my interest actually began as a tourist to the Bay of Naples. I was there after my family had gone on a Mediterranean cruise. Um, They did that while I was still at uni and they came back and said they had such a wonderful time that I took time to go over there for an internship. Mm -hmm. And that was really what sparked my interest in the phenomenon of the eruption of Vesuvius that buried Pompeii, as well as the general culture of the southern part of Italy. It's really something significant just to see the city when you walk through the streets. It's a city that was truly ahead of its time, in my opinion, just see how huge it was. It's a large site by you know any archaeological standard. It's relatively all-encompassing. You can find everything in terms of um, different classes of people, different um, even cultures interacting in that part of the world. And this is a legacy that Pompeii is uh, well known for, I think. So let's start at the end, not so long ago. It's, not, it's long ago, but not so long ago when Pompeii was found in the year 1748. So how did the world react to it? How did the archaeologists react? What was the significance of the finding of Pompeii? Sure. The most important thing about the beginning of the discovery of Pompeii actually goes to the site next door, Herculaneum. And that was the first inclination that there there would be more things of value here. And by value, I don't mean necessarily scientifically or even um, cultural at that time. These were more of um, what we would refer to in modern day as looting, essentially. And the general consensus at the time was that the things that would be most pleasing to uh, Charles, uh, King of Bourbon, who was the monarch ruling Naples at the time, um, what would be of his taste, what would be useful or interesting to him, and his cohorts and the individuals working for him on the excavation handpicked most of the things that were initially extracted based on the notion of this would benefit the monarchy in some way. Was it difficult for the for the for the, the archaeologists to dig through the, the, the city of Pompeii in that time? 
It was extremely difficult and the scale of operations that were going on at this time in the early part of the middle part of the 18th century were quite renowned in the region and the level of professionalism, albeit not scientific and archaeological terms, was really high. So you had individuals like architects, engineers. Um, one of the more famous ones uh, is, a, is an architect who discovered the, the Herculaneum site, Domenico Fontana. Um, and he was quite a good architect in, in his day. And the individuals who continued to work on the project throughout the 18th century were almost always handpicked for their level of professionalism, usually in the field outside of excavation. But there was quite a high skill level of the people doing you know, the initial excavations. And with the amazing technology that we got today, how does that help us understand and reveal more insights to the life and how the people lived in Pompeii? Sure. The biggest thing is, I think, safety first. So in the initial excavations, unfortunately, a lot of individuals lost their lives because the entire excavation was subterranean for the most part to begin with. And it wasn't until a little bit later in the excavation where they started exposing the site to the open air. And with that comes a whole host of other issues such as curation, maintaining things. So in, in archeology, span we now consistently will reinforce a wall that's uncovered. Whereas in, in that time, they weren't doing the proper caretaking and the, the conservation that really needed to be done in terms of general safety. And so, the technology that we bring to bear in the modern sense does a lot more for just the safety of the people working on the site. Um, it increases vastly the information that we can gather relatively quickly about what's going on. And that's anything from architectural integrity. So how is the, the building faring you know, 2000 years later? And some of the risk rewards for um, moving around earth or portions of the site to uncover more one of the major contentious points in Pompeii in our time now is the notion of uncovering new things versus preserving old things. And that's a contentious point in academia, in the communities surrounding Pompeii, and even at the international and national level in the, the Republic of Italy and the United Nations. Um, one of the major points that I think a lot of people are starting to understand is that the more you uncover, the greater the expenses to maintain it and to properly document it. The, the toll that it takes on a country's resources, especially you know, a country like Italy, where now during the pandemic and things like that, resources are, are marginal, it becomes a, a real question of what, what is most important, what does really have the value here. And a lot of people make the argument that it's the things that have already been discovered that we still don't know enough about. Yeah, we trust the modern technology to be accurate and to be that this is the way it was. Yes, I think the major point of new technology is that it can be verified and it can be verified at several different levels. So the notion of having, for example, a laser scanner that can quickly and rapidly document the architectural fabric, so bricks, masonry, mosaics, uh, frescoes, anything like that. All of the measurements that are taken can be scientifically verified to a, a very, very prolific extent. We're talking nanometers and things like that. And we can also calibrate this equipment and ensure that the measurements we are taking actually make sense and that they are in fact absolute. 
And one of the things that has, I think, moved things forward in the last 10 or 20 years has been the ability to go in and measure and document and preserve things without really touching them. And that's one of the terms that I think is very important going forward in archaeology is this notion of non-invasive conservation or non-invasive restoration. The ability to go in, document, provide that data to a whole variety of professionals in different industries without actually having to touch or damage any of the priceless art and artifacts and architecture that's still there. Mm. And this tourism kind of in the way a little bit, would you say? For all, all of us tourists that visit the, the site and would you say we are kind of in the way a little bit? I think that it's, it's good that people are there and it's good that a lot of people are there because the knowledge and experience that can be had is in itself of a, a great value. However, in terms of trying to conserve, trying to restore, trying to preserve these uh, really ancient and old artifacts and monuments, tourism does play a role in the degradation, certainly, but as we know, it allows sites to raise funds to continue to conserve mm -hmm. things. So I think it's a, a trade-off in a way where you definitely want to monitor and control the amount of people that visit the site on an annual basis, certainly, and even more restrictions can be put in play to make sure that that's done. Um, but I think the value that people get from going there and touching and seeing, as you know, is, is really priceless. And the, oh, yeah. the science that is, I don't know, we can say impeded by a high volume of tourism isn't necessarily gonna stop research or uh, force the scientific community to really do things significantly different. Um, at the end of the day, you can always shut down a portion of a site and do the necessary restoration and scientific um, exploration without significantly impacting tourism at large. I'm sure when I was visiting Pompeii, I didn't see even half the city. It's an enormous site. A lot of people go there on an afternoon or in the morning thinking, I can see it in half a day, or I can oh, yeah. go to these particular houses that they've heard about or see something in particular that they want, like the forum is a very common one. Yeah. However, they quickly find once they arrive that you could spend a lifetime in Pompeii finding new and different and exciting things there. I've definitely not gone to because it's such an interesting city that really is it's a beautiful city. And that and the backdrop is amazing too. You do have oh, a yeah. wonderful volcano there. Is yeah. There. Which uh, which makes uh, now I want to go back in time to before the eruption of I'm probably gonna mix this up quite a lot, but in Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius because you think they the same name, but you kind of fix it up together a little bit. This I do sometimes. But so let's go to before the eruption. And I want to know, was, was Pompeii an important Roman city or is it not as important as we make it think because of their significant archaeological found or was it just a normal Roman city? I think it's a little bit of both. So it definitely had a certain commonplace uh, kind of, you can call it a, a posture in the, the southern part of the Roman Empire. So it did exist in a very important place in the, the Roman Empire on the Italic Peninsula. So you have 
the wealthy individuals of the Roman Empire. And remember, Pompeii, believe it or not, existed primarily in the Roman Republic and not so much in the, the empire. Mm. And so a lot of the frame of reference that we have for Pompeii and that area because of the 79 AD cutoff actually comes from the Roman Republic. But we do know that in the peripheral of Pompeii, some very important Romans were there. You have Pliny the Elder, for example, the one who documents uh, the Roman general who, or admiral, sorry, who documented the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And you have uh, individuals such as Cicero and uh, Julius Caesar's uncle and many, many more Romans that were affluent. They were power players uh, and they essentially made that Bay of Naples their home for a thousand years. Mm. So how old do we think the city is? When, how, when you have any idea of when the founding of the city was? So we don't really know when Pompeii began as a proper city. Um, we do know that several cultures previously occupied the site. So around the, the volcano, um, Vesuvius, we know that it was a sacred place, even in antiquity. And there are settlements, Naples, the, the larger city in that region is a testament to the significance of that area as well. And the lasting significance. Um, the, the settlement of Pompeii itself was in a way a, a cross section of the, the Southern portion of the, the Roman empire and the late Republic. There were individuals there coming from Egypt, trading with um, folks around the Mediterranean. There's a a very uh, heavy influence from Greece that, that exists in Pompeii. And we know that from the architecture and some of the artwork, but we also see that just the variety of different things that we now know to be in existence in Pompeii really do showcase that it wasn't necessarily a, this is where we're gonna build a city called Pompeii. It was more of a, this has the natural resources, the volcanic soil to grow crops and to um, really exist, as well as the climate. The, the Bay of Naples is known as a, a very temperate and um, wonderful place for, for humans to, to exist and to be out of the, the harm of, let's say, the, the snowy Alps or the heat of North Africa. And I think it's a blend of natural phenomenon that really lend the city its foundation along with the, the high traffic in antiquity that allowed this, uh, this city, Pompeii, as well as Naples to really take off. So it's not, it's not as mysterious as the founding of Rome, is it? Is it or is it like, do we have a blank, blank, blank idea of? It's, I think, much less dramatic, yes. I think it's more of a happenstance situation where things just kind of came together and this was a, a viable spot to, to make a city or a village as it started. Um, there isn't too much in the, the folklore of Pompeii. We don't have a Romulus or Remus or a Aeneas or anything like that going on at Pompeii. So what, what was a day in life like for an average Pompeian citizen? So remember, we have to take a look at Pompeii in a kind of a multi-tiered approach. So you have Pompeii as a vacation city. You have Pompeii as a marketplace, as a center of commerce. You have Pompeii as a focal point for the arts. There are theaters in Pompeii. You have uh, Pompeii in terms of how uh, an aristocratic or a wealthy Roman would have interacted with that area, as well as how um, slaves would have interacted with that area. 
And so a typical wife in Pompeii, we can look at, I think, two ends of the spectrum here. We can look at what a slave would perhaps be experiencing and what an aristocratic or a Roman elite would perhaps be experiencing. So from the slave side of things, we can say that Pompeii for them was probably a very unique Roman settlement to be in because we do know that there was a high volume of slaves in Pompeii. And this we know from not only the archeological record, but from some of the graffiti that exists there, as well as the, the formula for the late Republic and the early Roman empire. And these slaves were coming from all over. We're talking about North African slaves. We're talking about- um, Gallic slaves? Yeah, for, for sure we could have. Um, and the other thing is because of its seafaring you know, legacy and that being uh, a really important port in the Mediterranean and at least in the peripheral of Naples as well, um, we do know that it was extremely multicultural even at the, the slave level. And there are what I would aptly call subcultures within the slave culture. So remember slavery and that class of individuals, that's a very Roman way of looking at the, the stratification of society. Within the culture of the slaves, there are slaves that are more educated than others, and they're only educated in certain things. So you might have a slave from Greece who is very well versed in theater, in the literary legacy of of Greece and even Rome, who can probably speak Latin and Greek. And so that would be a slave that would probably find their way into the peripheral of the Roman elite. On the converse of that, you could also have a slave perhaps from uh, Egypt, where they are an expert in agricultural knowledge. They know how uh, wheat grows. They know how vineyards can be um, created and maintained. And so there is this microcosmic cross-section that you can always take within, you know, even a subset of the Roman culture that can give you a vast amount of information that's usually overlooked. And especially in the archaeological record, we often don't have access to a lot of those resources. And in the literary record, there's almost none. So to be able to go and excavate, find a slave with uh, a clutching, you know, a... Uh, an amulet or a uh, key to a house, it can tell you a lot about what was going on in their daily life. What, what were they doing? Why were they doing it? So even finding a slave with a key, not all keys are made equal. Was it a key to a warehouse? Was it a key to a villa? All of those little tiny things that we find in the archeological record really help tell a story. The other side of that would be the Roman aristocracy, the individuals who essentially their feet never touched the ground, as we would say. So they were surrounded by maybe a dozen, maybe a hundred slaves, all working to ensure that this Roman could exist within that elite strata of Roman culture. And those Romans, we know a lot more about. And we know a lot more about them because of the literary texts, because of their ability to patronize the arts, their ability to essentially exist in a much more presentable and prolific way. So when you walk into a villa, you know that it was typically the owner of the house that made the decisions in terms of the artwork, in terms of the materials. And you can tell a lot about an owner based on what materials, what art, what, they're, what story they're trying to tell through the architecture. And 
the ability to even tell a story like that through the architecture would come, at least in the Roman context, with a pretty vast knowledge of the, the culture and the, the things that you want to align yourself with and, and show that you're committed to these kind of ethos, these, these sentiments within your, your social sphere in the Roman time. So, so was Pompeii a city for the rich? Would you say? I think yes. I think it's more towards the the entertainment side of things, the getaway side of things, the resort town sort of mentality. Whereas if you go to Herculaneum, that's a little bit more rustic. The level of architecture maybe isn't as high in some instances. Certainly domestically, with you know their houses and stuff like that. However, we find that in both settlements. There is that tiered society where there is the, the urban villa, where you have a middle class to wealthy Roman living. And then just in the peripheral of Pompeii, you have mega villas. So at a site less than you know two miles from Pompeii, the site of Stabia, you have villas that are in excess of hundreds of thousands of square feet. And, and it's really a different dynamic. One of the comparisons we use here in the United States to help students understand that would be consider Pompeii as, you know, a smaller borough of Los Angeles, and then consider the villas at Stabia or Capri to be almost like a, a Beverly Hills. And so there is this kind of peripheral that Pompeii has to the most wealthy and powerful people that were alive at that time. I was going to say, so it's more like Florida, in a sense. I would say so, yeah. So let's go to the day before before the eruption. What do we have any idea what life was like in the day before the day and the night of the eruption? Or yes, we actually know quite a bit about that, and a lot of that is uh, the result of the way in which the site was preserved. It was almost instantaneous, and the instantaneous nature of the preservation allows us to really see a snapshot in a day in the life of, of a Roman and slaves and anyone who was there at the time. So we have individuals who essentially walked off the job at places like a laundromat. Um, we have individuals who were making wine at the time. We have uh, individuals, as was recently discovered, um, that were perhaps taking, you know, their their carriage out for a drive and they had to abandon it and um, you know, take, a, take appropriate action during that emergency. But the one thing that's always, I think, unique about anything that you see in Pompeii is that someone touched that you know, in the moments before the eruption happened and the site wasn't abandoned for many, many years before it was discovered or something like that people left essentially the day of and they left a lot of things in place and by leaving those things in place we are able to build a, i think a more extensive narrative than you usually can find at a lot of other archaeological sites and so some of the daily lives are again the slaves the wealthy um, merchants and so on. Uh, there is a, a pretty important laundromat uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, owned by a man named Stephanos. And we know quite a bit about what was going on at that laundromat. So we know that in the morning, they would go around and collect the urine from the night before from various taverns, private residences. They would then take the urine of the, the citizenry of Pompeii, 
put that into the laundromat and essentially start that process of getting the laundry done for the day. And at a certain point that stopped and everyone had to evacuate or at least to the best of their ability, react to the, the volcanic eruption. And those little moments, those little snapshots in terms of the archeological record are so rare to come across that it continues to this day to be something that is used in the argument for further uncovering portions of Pompeii, even though the rest of the site is um, still being uh, challenged with preservation issues. So was this really the first time that the Roman Republic, uh, Roman Empire, it was more or less an empire at this point. Was it the first time, I'm sorry, yeah, it was the Roman Empire at this point. Well, was it the first, truly the first time they, uh, they had a volcanic explosion or was it, have, they, have it happened before? Yeah, so it's certainly not the first natural disaster that the Romans had been exposed to. Um, nor was it the first one in the, in the region. We know from uh, Minoan archaeology that on the island of Cyprus, there was other volcanic eruptions and the, the Romans and certainly the, the ancestors of the Romans were witness to these eruptions. And Mount Vesuvius as well had other phenomenon associated with the volcano, such as earthquakes and things like that. And we know from the architectural record in Pompeii that the city had suffered several earthquakes one just a decade before. And so some repairs weren't even finished by the time that the 79 AD volcanic eruption hit the city again. And so these kind of recurring natural phenomenon, and again, in, in antiquity, these were referred to as the wrath of the gods and things like that. But the Romans were, were no strangers to these events, certainly. But why do we like to say that this is the first time that they, because many do think that this was the first time that the, the Romans experienced a volcano? It, it, to me, it was the first time that a lot of individuals had. And that in itself, I think, is something not to be overlooked. For many people, especially young people or the individuals who might not be quite as literate or as informed, this must have been one of the most terrifying things that they had never experienced or heard of anyone experiencing that they had ever lived through in their entire lives. And some of them didn't survive that. And it's perhaps not far off to say that because they had never experienced this, they did not know what to do. And therefore, they weren't able to properly take action and survive the event. One of the more interesting accounts is that of Pliny, where it, the eruption is described and it's understood that this is uncommon. This is something that needs to be addressed. And he actively then goes and takes his ship and tries to access the event. And that in itself, I think, says a lot about the mentality of the Roman ruling elite. They weren't really scared or necessarily unaware of what was going on. They just weren't familiar with what we would now call standard operating procedures and how to handle it. Um, the other thing is that in antiquity, it was so difficult to communicate a, a single message instantaneously, especially when we're talking about a 24, 48, 72 hour timeline. There's no way that someone with the knowledge of what was happening could get that to someone who didn't have it and have that be an all encompassing kind of warning. So, so what was the aftermath like of Pompeii? What was the, after the eruption, how, how did the Roman world view this? 
it was considered a great tragedy at the time. It was a situation where a large portion of the population, especially when you consider the, the multiple settlements that were affected by this, it was a very tragic event. And from Rome, uh, there was uh, an emergency response that was sent out. And so uh, the Roman army responded to the Bay of Naples, uh, as well as engineers, Roman architects, um, anyone who would be of use in essentially figuring out and helping to um, remedy the situation of a town basically disappearing. And that's something that oftentimes, I don't think the Romans get enough credit for their response at the time. They did the very best they could. They um, opened up their coffers and believe it or not, the emergency response to Pompeii actually burdened the, the imperial purse for some years to come after. So what was Emperor Vespasian's reaction? I've had to try to say that name right. What was his reaction when he found out about Pompeii? Well, he had a lot of friends in the Bay of Naples. And so one of the things that he immediately did was uh, he sent his son to respond to that. And so the biggest thing that we know now is that Vespasian's son, Titus, was the one who actually led the efforts to... Um, try to get people out of the region, try to help them. And the fact that the, the emperor is using his own son in the response and that the son is activated to respond to it, it I think shows the significance of the, the situation at the time. I think that shows a level of concern that is really, really high. Was it dangerous to enter the area after the volcanic explosion? Were people still afraid to go in there in case? Yes, a lot of people um, didn't return. They they viewed it as a essentially a cursed area, uh, a no go zone, if you will. Um, however, the uh, the Roman army was able to go in, and we know from the archaeological record that the Roman army actually started excavating Pompeii in antiquity, and they went in and extracted certain things that they knew were there, such as the marble in the Forum at Pompeii, and other areas where they had an idea things would uh, would still be. And remember that the Romans were pretty adept at mapping. They understood where the roads led to and they knew where Pompeii should be. And part of that knowledge helped them to recover some things in antiquity, but we don't really know to what degree they were able to do that sort of recovery. So while we understand that there's some things that have that were extracted in antiquity, some things that were extracted in the 18th century, we don't really have an idea of how the Romans were doing that back in that time. And the other thing is that we do know that after a volcanic eruption like that, that earth is unstable. So you do have these lava flows that, and you know, these pyroclastic surges that now in our modern time create very hard and dense um, stratigraphy to, to excavate through. But at the time, immediately following the eruption, you still had a, a tremendous risk of cave-ins and things like that as well. And the general lay of the land was so transformed that any of the wayfinding features that were previously used to get to Pompeii were completely erased. So because you mentioned that the, the total area was cursed, is that, what, is that why they didn't try to rebuild Pompeii after the eruption? Because they thought it was cursed? Or is there other reasons why they didn't, didn't want to rebuild the city? Well, without being certain, the one, I think, major major consideration would be the transformation of that area geographically. So 
the coast wasn't where it previously had been. Um, they were uncertain what was beneath the new coastline. In my opinion, they really just didn't see a reason after a major destructional event like that, a destruction of, you know, they, why would you rebuild right there? Especially when there are so many lives lost and so much pain and the memory was so fresh. To me, it just, it didn't make that much sense for them to go back and try to rebuild there. But you do see activation of other parts of the Bay of Naples. So the city of Neapolis, modern day Napoli, that took off ports to the north that weren't affected by the volcano. Uh, they were still booming. The island of Capri was a focal point of, of the empire and emperors for many, many years to come after the eruption. But I think the significant impact and the transformation that occurred was so, so altering for the, the Roman psyche that it just wasn't in their, their minds to, to rebuild in that area. Hmm. So the 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 Vesuvius is still a very much active volcano today, and uh, what 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 we again with the modern technology that we do have, do we have a sense of when it will erupt and if it will erupt again? Which is probably it probably will. And what will be the consequences of an eruption today? Do we have time to evacuate or? Well, the, so the, the area around Vesuvius, uh, we have to first look at the scope of it. So Mount Vesuvius, even though it's a very prolific feature on the landscape, it's just representative of the surface. Beneath Mount Vesuvius, there are significant volcanic activities occurring that we can now monitor so we can understand the difference between uh, an earthquake generated from, oh, let's say a seismic shift in something, you know, some tectonic phenomenon versus this is a portion of a, perhaps a, a chamber collapsing, you know, somewhere beneath the city of Naples or something like that. And even though the volcano is very well monitored, uh, it's still a situation where the population density around that area makes it such a potentially dangerous uh, event that it's unfortunate to say that there isn't probably the resources to be able to facilitate the evacuation during another major, major eruption. So you're thinking we come suddenly and we don't have anything, anything we can do about it like the last time? So the monitoring does give us a lead time. How extensive that lead time is will be determined by the type of eruption. And even though warnings may go out, resources may be mobilized to help facilitate an evacuation, depending on the type of, a rush, uh, of eruption, you could see impacts all over the Eastern Mediterranean from the ash and from you know, other, other effects, the earthquakes um, that can come from a volcanic eruption. So I think it's fair to say that the, the potential for damage um, and collateral could be really significant and it would extend far beyond the Italian peninsula if that volcano erupted again. Thank you for coming on. This is, uh, before you go, do you have uh, anything you wish to promote or anything you want me to put in the description? Yeah, I think that Pompeii, while it still has a great legacy of tourism, the 
the scientific and academic community needs to focus on non-invasive techniques for monitoring, preserving, and maintaining the site at Pompeii. It's amazing that so many tourists get to see the site every year, but careful evaluation of each and every brick at Pompeii should be documented. And the new laser scanning, um, remote sensing technologies that we have should be applied to that project. Um, yeah, do you have anything you, you wish to promote yourself or do you, if people want to find you on social media, where, where can people find you if they're, if they're interested yeah. in learning more about this? Sure. So uh, on the private side of things, latenechogroup.com uh, is a great place for you to look at some of the technology that we use when we're in sites like Pompeii. It's laser scanning. And it's again, that non-invasive technology. So anyone looking to preserve an archeological site in their community, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to advise on different methods and approaches to evaluating the site and how to go about it in a very unintrusive and hopefully productive way. Thank you for coming on. This has been World at Age 12. I'm also on, you can find me on Instagram to, under that age 12. And we are on YouTube, World at Age 12. I also launched a second podcast where I interview anything and anyone from poor stars to FBI agents. Definitely check that out. Our link will be in the description. We will uh, thank you for listening. This has been World at Age 12. I'll see you next time. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.